This morning we are, uh, are going to be in 1 Corinthians 4, but before we get there, I want to tell you a, a bit of a story. And so when we were, and when my wife Anna and I were in the midst of our adoption, we had to do a tremendous amount of evaluations. Um, we were taking test after test after test. And so this one test would say, uh, ultimately tell us how we were doing in our marriage. And this one would be an assessment of how we handled our money. And this one would be an assessment kind of of us personally and maybe how we were going to parent. But the scariest of them all was our psychological evaluation that we had to do that essentially determined whether or not we were sane. And if you've ever taken one of those standardized tests like that, you'll you recognize that in about halfway through, you remember, oh man, every one of these questions bears some weight. And you think, these questions seem quite just unimportant. Like, do I prop my feet up at night when I'm going to bed? And like, man, do I get angry sometimes? Or do I generally like my work that I do? Or do I ever get stressed? And But halfway through, I think, oh my gosh, if I answered something that says like, red flag, red flag, this guy's gonna murder somebody. Like, I, I freaked out and I thought, I don't think I'm going to murder anybody, but what if this question says, what if I do it in this specific order? And, and if you ordered it D, D, A, B, C, automatically red flags go up and your name gets put on some like FBI list. Like, have I messed myself up for the rest of eternity because of this one test? Now we got it back. Thankfully, it said that I was sane. I can't promise that I answered all the questions truthfully, but it said that I was sane and we were able to move forward with the adoption. But assessments seem to be very much our way of life nowadays. We like those assessments. Many of us have, have had personality test after personality test, right? You know, you, you might know whether you're an ENTJ or an ISFP, and that's one type of personality test. Or you may have the one that's you know, I'm a, I'm a golden retriever, or I'm a lion, or maybe it's that animal personality test. Maybe you know those. And, but, but more than just personality, we like assessing things in general. We like to know what people think about us. And so if you go to Chick-fil-A like me, and they print out your receipt, you're praying and hoping with your fingers crossed that it's got that little survey on it that you can fill out for a free chicken sandwich, Right? And you get back to your seat and you pull out your phone and you, you punch in that unrealistically long number and, and then you take this quiz and you're like, highly satisfied, highly satisfied. I was highly satisfied because it's Chick-fil-A. We're all highly satisfied all the time. And at the end, you get this free chicken sandwich and you think, that was well worth my time. But it happens in all areas of life. Anna and I went to see a movie the other night and the next morning I woke up to an email from this movie theater. Hey, would you rate your experience at our movie theater? We all seem to really want to know what we're doing well. And more than that, we want someone else to look at us and say, you're doing okay. You're doing all right. You're going to be okay. Your movie theater was clean. You know, your chicken sandwich came out hot and fresh like it always does. We want that affirmation in our lives. So I want to read for us today from 1 Corinthians 4. We'll be in the first five verses. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing 
that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not therefore acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I want to give us a little background of where we've been if you're just now jumping into this for us or with us. Uh, These first three chapters, Paul has spent a decent amount of time talking about the disunity within the Corinthian church. A lot of their disunity seems to be about which leader they're going to follow. And so he's mentioned a couple different guys' names. He's mentioned himself. He's mentioned a guy named Cephas. He's mentioned a guy named Apollos. And there's been a little bit of maybe undercurrent. You hear Paul, maybe what they were saying about Paul, and maybe they were saying he came to them and maybe he wasn't really a great preacher that one time. He came in weakness is how he said it. And, and maybe, maybe they've really elevated this guy named Apollos because we hear that he is super eloquent. And so Paul is saying, man, you guys have spent a tremendous amount of time determining who you're going to follow. And as Matt taught us last week, we are not called to boast in men. So their disunity was about, seemed to be much about who they're following, but really we shouldn't determine our identity based on who we're following. And so we've gotten up to this point, and Paul is about to finish off this section. Chapter 4 kind of concludes this section that we'll be kind of preaching under Christian wisdom. So he's going to conclude this section. He's just said, you've been looking at your leaders kind of wrong. You've been determining who you're going to follow. And so what does he say here in the chart of chapter 4? Let me tell you, He says, this is how one should regard us. So you may ask yourself, well, who's that us there? The us in that statement really does seem to be specifically the leaders of their church. Remember Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And he's saying, this is how you should look at us as your leaders. Now, if this were a sermon this morning to just our pastors and elders, many of you could go home. But that's not what it's going to be, so stay firmly planted. So many of us are ministry leaders in certain ways. Maybe you lead a class in Awana. Maybe you help out Justin in the youth ministry. Maybe you help me play music. And so there are going to be many ways that we're going to be leaders within the church. And so if you find yourself in one of those positions, you're going to be able to add yourself into the us today. And I would argue that if this is a calling for maybe a higher position within our churches, if this is a calling for our leaders, shouldn't it then be an aspiration for us all? So this is a calling to our leaders. It should thus be an aspiration to us all. So imagine this morning that Paul is preaching to you. Okay, you place yourself as a believer in the midst of the us. But secondly, I want you to kind of think through it with a different ear. Hear this message today with a different ear. As someone who should then be taught how to regard our leaders. How do we look at those leading our church? So maybe you are a leader, but you think, man, I still have someone leading me. Here's how I regard that person. So it's the dual ear. It's one, this is how I am as a leader. This is how I should be. And two, it is this is how I view my leaders. And so listen kind of dually for that 
this morning. So let's jump in a little bit more into the text. This is how one should regard us, us as the leaders. And here it is. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, many of you have been taught that servants are often kind of interchangeably scripturally with the word slave. And and sometimes that is true. But the word slave, which Paul uses many other times, is this Greek word doulos, which is not the word he uses here. So don't necessarily think of this servant as a slave. Now, Paul does say he is a slave to Christ in other places. But he is not saying here that he is a slave. What Paul is going to do is he's going to set up what I'm going to kind of call the household model over the next couple of verses. He's setting up a household model. And what this is going to be is this servant is a title in the household of the master. So it's, it's a freed person. It's not a slave. And Paul is, is lifting up the, the believer and saying, you have a title, you have a place, a status in the household of God. If any of you have been in a position maybe where you didn't have a title and you look at that person with a title and you thought, man, it seems like they have a little more power. It seems like they can pull strings a little more. It seems like, but also maybe they have a little more responsibility. That's also what this position is doing. It's elevating this person into a position of authority. But don't go too far with that because the servant model of leadership, one we can look to and the only one we can look to in the midst of that is Jesus. And so if we are to lead like Jesus called us to lead, we are leaving with a, leading with a servant model in mind. So what does that mean? Well, we see Jesus the night before he's betrayed. We see him wash his disciples' feet in service. He is serving his brothers and sisters. The next day, we see him go and be crucified on a cross, serving all of us for eternity. This is this eternal service He's giving us this gift. And so Jesus' model of service is well-documented and should thus be then imitated by us. We are the ones to imitate that model of service. And so but we must remember who, he's, who we're being called to serve. And what does this say? As servants of Christ. So that's going to be really important for you to remember throughout. He's calling us to be servants of Christ. Now, moving on, we're servants of Christ, and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, before we get into that, I want to do a quick understanding of mysteries. Paul has preached on this a little bit in uh, chapter 2, and Matt has kind of explained for us what mysteries of God really means. And he said the mysteries of God, the mystery of God, sometimes it's singular, the mystery of God is that which is foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew. It's that thing that you need the Holy Spirit to understand, and that thing is the crucifixion of Christ. Ultimately, we would say it is the gospel. So if you're interested in hearing more about that, through this, service, or through this series, we've preached a little bit on the mystery of God or the mysteries of God, and that's what we're going to do today. And so we're going to say, every time we see mysteries of God, we're going to use that interchangeably with the gospel. And so he's essentially saying here, you are stewards of the gospel, stewards of the gospel. Now, some of you may hear that word and be much like me was when I was a little kid. And I thought, man, it's really weird that they're calling us to be stewards. My friend's dad's name's Stuart, and he's this overweight guy with this little goatee, and he's really angry all the time. I don't want to be like him. 
Stop calling me to be like, we often call them beefy stew. Stop calling me to be like beefy stew. I don't want to be like that guy. Then I understood they were saying steward, and that is a very different word than steward. And I thought, I can do that. As long as I don't have to be that guy. But a steward is something different. Again, it's this elevation. In this passage, it is a title in the household of God. It is a title in the household. And this is where we get more of that understanding. The actual word here essentially kind of looks like house person, almost like if you're a house sitter. This person would have been number two to the master of the house. This person would have managed the household if the master ever were to go away on business. They made sure everything stayed put. They made sure nothing happened to the household. They made sure if the kids were back, the kids were taken care of. They were the one kind of controlling the estate if the master was ever out. So this person had a great deal of responsibility in the household of the master. And so what then, what does it say? Moreover, it is required of stewards that they must be found faithful. Accountability requires faithfulness. When Anna and I lived in in Denver, we made really good friends quickly with a family at church, um, and they're a great family. And uh, one night, we got to know them well enough, and they asked us over for dinner. And we went over to their house, and I said, thank the Lord I was friends with these people before I saw their house. Not because their house was janky, but because I would have been greatly tempted to only be friends with them because of their house. It was the coolest place in the world. Like the basement had this massive cinema and like ping pong tables and pool tables and like shuffleboard and like a thousand TVs. It was the greatest place I've ever been in my life. And there's this like dog and the dog weighs like a thousand pounds. That's probably not true, but he's like massive. And it it was amazing. I loved being at their house. Luckily, as I mentioned, we were really good friends with them. So I wasn't just friends with them for their house. Don't get any ideas. But it just really worked out in my favor. <laughs> so we, we got to know them well. And uh, the husband traveled for work very often. And so one time he was traveling and he took his wife with him. And, and they asked us if we would come house sit for them while they were going to be gone for the week. And I thought, hold on, I get to spend a week in your house. And you're going to pay me cash to do it? absolutely sign me up every day of the week. This sounds great. We didn't have kids yet. So it was like, this is a vacation for us. This is nicer than any vacation we could ever afford. (laughs) Just staying at your house. This is great. And so we went and we, we took care of the house. And after I had watched, you know, 15 movies by myself in the theater and, you know, played, and there's only a certain amount of ping pong that you can play with the table up and, you know, shuffleboard, not quite very much fun by yourself. And so I said, Anna, let's have some friends over. Uh, from seminary, uh, watching fo- I think it was a football game coming on. And so let's have them over and let's watch a football game. And so we had some friends over. And before you get, again, excited that I somehow threw a massive raver at these people's house while they were out, we are seminarians. Our parties are very dull. And so to give you an idea, someone brought as a side Brussels sprouts. And so if you ever have Brussels sprouts at your party, it's immediately not cool. Okay. <laughs> Now, we did take care of their house well, but it stunk because it smelled like Brussels sprouts. (laughs) But we had these friends over, and as they're coming over, I found myself throughout the night kind of saying, hey, can you put a coaster under your drink? And Hey, actually, can you not park in the grass? Can you park in the driveway? I don't know how you missed the driveway. It's like a 1,000 feet wide. (laughs) And then I 
Oh, man, don't hit the table like that. You're actually scuffing up the table. Can we be a little more careful? Why was I like that? Because I was in charge of this house. And I wasn't accountable to my friends because they were going to leave. And I'm not accountable to them for what the house is going to look like when the owners come back. Who am I accountable to? The homeowners. And I knew how they liked things. And so they, they came back and the house was fine. I'd fed the dog so he didn't eat through a wall, which he could have. He's just massive dog. And so I, I did everything I needed to do because ultimately I was accountable to the homeowner. See, in the midst of that relationship, the currency was faithfulness. They knew I would be faithful to the way they wanted this done. Now, don't get yourself wrong. The currency was also cash. But the currency was faithfulness to what they had called me to. And in this relationship, Paul is saying, you are called to be faithful, a steward of the mysteries of God, the steward of the gospel. And you are a servant of Christ. And so who are you accountable to? You are accountable to God. And he is going to judge you based on your faithfulness. Well, if he's going to judge me based on my faithfulness, I better know what faithfulness looks like, right? And so I think we see through, through the, this book and through the whole of the Bible, we see Get this picture for what faithfulness looks like. It looks like obedience to the word. You know, first John, John's gonna say, if, if you love Christ, then you will do what he commands of you. It is obedience to the word. Faithfulness to the owner was doing what they asked me to do. It was feeding the dog. It was making sure Penny, their cat, didn't get lost. She did, but we found her before they came back home. It was obedience to the, what was required of us. It's perseverance in the midst of trial. Faithfulness is the perseverance in the midst of trial. Paul in Romans hypes up perseverance heavily. And he's going to say perseverance ultimately leads into this holiness, into developing you and making you more holy. And finally, I think this faithfulness is being dedicated to truth. It is being dedicated to orthodoxy. The gospel, this thing that we have, and we're being, we've been entrusted to it. Remember, we're the one who, we've been entrusted to this while the homeowner is away. We've been entrusted the gospel. We should take care of it. We should be dedicated to truth and to orthodoxy. If someone tries to change this or affect it or nick the pool table, we should take care, Right? This is equivalent to leaving your drink on the wood piece of furniture without a coaster underneath it. We should take care of the gospel and be defenders of truth. This is what faithfulness looks like. And I'm faithful to the gospel because I care what the homeowner thinks, right? I'm careful with the house because I care what the homeowner thinks. I'm careful with the gospel because I care what God thinks. Because ultimately in that transaction with this family, my friends who were over that night, they don't pay me for watching the house. If they say, you're doing a really good job watching this house, that means nothing to me. The only affirmation that I'm waiting for is that of the homeowner. One, because they're paying me. 
Two, because I care about their friendship. They've, they've entrusted me with a certain faithfulness. Now Paul moves on in verse 3. He says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. And some of you are thinking, man, Paul is quite pompous. He thinks very highly of himself, doesn't he? He essentially is saying, you don't really have a right to judge me. Actually, your opinion really means pretty little to me. I don't really care a tremendous amount whether you think I'm as eloquent as Apollos. I don't care a tremendous amount whether you think I brought you milk. Guess what? You needed milk, is what he says. And so you and your human courts matter very little to me. And I think this is a really important thing for us to grasp. I saw on Facebook the other day this quote, and, and it was a new phrase to me, but maybe you've heard it. Uh, it was the disease to please. And I thought, man, that's perfect for this sermon. I'm going to grab that. And I thought, that is such a true thing for many people. They have this disease to please. They have this desire to make other people happy. And Paul is essentially here saying, I'm here to serve Christ. I'm not here to make you happy. So what he's saying in the midst of that is, I'm not necessarily here to please other people. Now, I think many of us fall into the category, someone would say that you are a people pleaser. If you spend too much time around me, you recognize that is very much not me. Uh, I like to ruffle feathers. Um, but some, luckily I have people around me who are more loving than I am. Uh, one person amongst us who is one of my dear friends, and he does this solely and purely out of his love, his genuine love for other people. But I thought a perfect example of saying, some of you are, I mean, you just are, get killed on the inside when you know somebody's not happy with you, right? You're like, oh gosh, I just don't want them to be mad at me. If only they understood a little more, if only. And that, that most of the time comes from a place of love for that other person. Uh, we were in Memphis a couple weeks ago and my boy Justin was in line with us and he'd, he'd hopped out of line. We were in line to get uh, some food and he hopped out of line to go to the bathroom and some people would come in behind us after, in the midst of that. And when he came back, he kind of had to make his way through them and, oh, I, sorry, I got I to gotta get up here with my friends. And what did we do? We jokingly said, uh, no, don't let that guy through. Uh, he's not with us. Um, keep him back there. So this lady in front of Justin said, forget this. We're going to a different restaurant. And she walked out of the restaurant because Justin was cutting her. But he wasn't really cutting her. Justin was doing exactly what he was supposed to. If you know Justin, you know that killed him into his inner core. Like, he was like uh, freaking out. So what's he do? He chases them out of the restaurant and goes outside and says, Hey, uh, I, was, I was just in that bathroom. I was trying to get... He's trying to make the situation okay. And I thought, man, that's the difference between Justin and me. I would have said, sweet, y'all go on to a different restaurant. I don't really want to eat with y'all. <laughs> But some people, in like every situation, you want to chase that person down and say, hey, let me make this right with you. I don't want you to be mad at me. Let me make this right. Now, some of you even take it to another level and you say, man, I just want to do anything I can to please you. Let me just, let me just kind of go way out of my way to please you because I care what you think about me. 
I want to do anything I can to lift myself up in your eyes because I care what you think about me. Please affirm me. Please tell me I'm doing a good job. Please just pour into me and tell me that that I'm going to be okay. Some of us have that disease to please. And you know where it's infiltrated the most? It seems to me it's infiltrated our churches. Many churches have this disease to please. And so what do they do? They, they give in to any whim and they say, our, our services are going to look like this and we're going to have that. And we're going to, you know, oh, this pastor, he's not eloquent enough. Well, he's going to get, he's not going to get fired. But he's going to get encouraged to go somewhere else. And, uh, and this guy, oh, he, you know, he's not that great of a worship leader. And you know what? We tried it out for six months and he's just going to go on. And we created this kind of consumeristic effect in the church where what we determine as success is on really superficial things. Our success metric in the church is based on really superficial stuff. I saw this conference getting uh, promoted the other day and it's a men's conference. And so I've never seen anything more consumeristic driven. And so in the midst of this conference, it's got the promo video for it has monster trucks, dirt bikes, like jump trampoline basketball, a dude coming out with like machine guns shooting like crazy, fire shooting out, an MMA fight happens in the midst of it. And I think, I thought this was supposed to be like a Christian men's conference. But they're saying like, we want to get anybody and everybody that can come. And so they've created this really consumeristic approach to church because they say, I care what you think about. Affirm me. Come to my conference telling me I'm doing a good job created this consumeristic approach. And some of us have not, maybe you haven't, haven't let your opinions get that way where you sway things, but maybe you fed into the system of the consumeristic churchgoer. Maybe you said, well, we go to Awana over here and we go to take our youth over there. And I like this music and I like to listen to that guy preach. And, uh, and so you shopped around different things and you fed into these pastors who have been pulled into this consumeristic approach. It's very easy for us as pastors to find those metrics and say they're good. Don't feed that anymore. But he continues on. He doesn't just say, I don't necessarily care about your opinions. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. This is really where it gets kind of anti our culture, right? He says, I don't even judge myself. So far, the culture would say, hey, that's fine. Yeah, nobody else can judge me in that, in that part. When you can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And that kind of gets them out of anything. And, but what do we say? What's kind of our mantra as our culture? I mean, I am going to listen to myself. I listen to my heart. I get mine first. I do what makes me feel good. I do what makes me feel good. There was a a poll that uh, was distributed, and it said, affirm or disaffirm this statement. Say whether you think this statement is true. To find yourself, look within yourself. Say whether or not you say that statement is true. To find yourself, look within yourself. 91% of Americans said that is a true statement. To find yourself, 
Look within yourself. Even more scary, 76% of Christians said that is a true statement. To find yourself, look within yourself. But we know, according to this text, that that cannot be true. Again, as Matt told us last week, our hearts are deceitful, right? We create within us our own lies and we buy, we buy into them. Our culture has bought into those lies. We are a self-identifying culture, right? We say, you can't define me, I define me. And so you can't look at me and say what gender or sexual orientation I am. I self-identify as X. There's a, a new movement of people who say, I'm not even, you can't look at me and say I'm a human. I'm actually, uh, I'm actually a fox. I feel like a fox on the inside. And so they dress up like a fox or a unicorn or they, whatever animal they feel like on the inside. And we may laugh at that and we may say, man, that seems ridiculous. And I look at that and I say, I'm so burdened for that person. Can you imagine the internal struggle that goes on? They don't feel comfortable with themselves because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are trying to lie. They, they're moving in the ways that deceive us. But Paul's just told us in chapter 3 that we can deceive ourselves. And Paul says here, this is how we know Paul says, maybe my heart's even deceitful. I don't know anything about myself. I don't know anything that I've done against myself. But that doesn't mean I am acquitted. That doesn't mean I'm acquitted. That doesn't mean, just because I don't know if I've done anything, doesn't mean I'm innocent. Man, to our culture, that seems ridiculous. Why? Because we judge ourselves. We serve ourselves. All of this points back to what Paul says is how they should regard us. What should they regard us as? Servants of Christ. But when we play into the opinions of others, who are we a servant of? We are servants of others. And we, we play into every whim and every fancy they may have. Or maybe more likely we're a servant to ourselves. And we just tell ourselves only what we want to hear. But what does Paul say at the end of verse 4? It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So we've said the, the world can't put that judgment on you and you can't even put that judgment on yourself. Who judges? It is the Lord. And why is he able? Because he is the only omniscient one. He is the only one who is perfect in his knowledge. He's able to look at the deep recesses of your heart in those, those hidden away places and he's able to bring them to light because he is the light. He knows all and is able to judge the situations perfectly. How often are we wrong about the prerogatives of others? How often are we wrong in our own courts? How often do we incorrectly judge someone? And how often do we deceive ourselves? I know last night when I set my alarm, I said, I'm going to wake up at six. And this morning when six came around, I thought, I'm not waking up at six. That was like a good joke last night, me. It's not happening. 
We are deceitful, deceitful in our own hearts. Our judgments and our assessments are extremely superficial. We can only look at those things on the outside and it says that God, he can go into those deep, dark places and bring to light the things hidden in darkness. And this means two things for us. One, it means that we are free from the anxiety of the pressures of those around you and the anxiety of the pressures that you put on yourself. You are freed from those. Our world is full of anxious people nowadays. That is one of the number, it's the number one diagnosis of psychologists is anxiety now. And we've created this culture specifically with kind of high school and college students where they feel a tremendous amount of pressure from their parents and from the world and from themselves and from their teachers to do well on tests. And you know what? Maybe, maybe you thought a 30 on the ACT was good, but guess what? It's not gonna get you into the school that you wanna go. And you know what? Maybe you thought that a 4.2 GPA was good. Guess what? To get into this school, you need a 4.6. And I thought, man, I thought you could only get a 4.0. How are you getting a 4.6? Somehow they're doing that nowadays. They just elevated the game on GPAs. And so... There's so much pressure on these people. Dr. Richard LaHaye, who's a psychologist who focuses on anxiety, said this. He said, the, he ran a test and said, the average high schooler in America today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the 1950s. We are burdened down by what other people think of us. Paul tells us here, their judgments, they're not what defines us. God will be our judge. That's both freeing and terrifying. You aren't your own judge. That's both freeing and terrifying. But on the flip side of that, we've got to stop looking at other people for praise. If we're giving up their criticisms and their critiques, we've also got to give up their praise, right? We've got to look to him and him alone for that praise. The end of verse 5 says, he, our, our commendation is coming for those who are faithful. Praise is coming for those who are faithful. We can't just give up the stresses of the world. We've got to give up their praise as well. Their opinions of us matter very little. Why? Because we know that it is ultimately our Father who judges us. When we seek affirmation from someone, we are letting them shape our message. So if we seek affirmation from other people, we are letting them shape the thing that we have been entrusted to. If I'm seeking affirmation from you, then I'm trying to seek your praise and I'm trying to please you. And so I'm only gonna give you a message that pleases you. So many of our churches have moved to messages that please the ears of people. Why? Because they are serving those people and they're not serving God. And maybe, maybe you're saying, I'm only gonna seek the praise and affirmation from myself, well, then you will preach yourself a message that only sounds good to you. You're gonna leave behind all the parts of the gospel that are challenging, and you're just gonna seek to affirm yourself. Sin will not have a place in that, and as many churches have done that, many people have done that. 
What he's saying is, we are servants of Christ, and therefore we preach a message that is glorifying to Christ. We don't change. We seek to glorify Christ in the midst of our message. Who you serve determines your message. So today you might be in here and you, you might say, I'm not a believer. I don't know what this message had to do for me. Maybe you've been in a church though. Maybe you've seen leaders and you've said, I, that guy seemed like he was in it for the money or that person. I mean, they seemed like they, they just fell into any trap that somebody, anybody came up to ask them if they wanted to do something, they'd do it. And so I just didn't like those leaders. Man, let me tell you, we as leaders will fail you every time. So if you're basing your decision on whether or not to be a Christian based on your leaders, we'll fail you every time. But look to this for the model of what leadership is supposed to be. It is service, service like Christ who ended up laying down his life for someone. So that's the call for us as leaders, is to be leaders who serve like that. Maybe you're in here today and you're saying, I'm not a, maybe I'm, I'm a Christian or maybe I'm not a Christian, but I am so burdened by the anxieties from the pressures of the world. I feel so weighted down by what other people think of me. I try to go out of my way to do things that they like so that they praise me and affirm me. I wear these clothes so that they praise me and affirm me. I, buy, I bought a house in this subdivision so they praise me and affirm me. I bought this car so somebody praises me and affirms me. Or whatever is the end thing in your in crowd, I do that so people praise and affirm me. And I want you to hear this morning, the gospel is better than that. It lifts those anxieties because we're able to see that it is only Christ who judges and affirms us. And maybe you're in here today and you say, I'm a mature believer. I'm a leader in our church. What do I do now? Stop using superficial metrics to determine success in your ministry. Stop looking at the size of a budget or the, the number of people that come to you or the size of your building or, or whether or not you have so many likes or whatever on Facebook or Twitter. Serve God faithfully, which in turn means you're serving your people faithfully and stay dedicated to the gospel and perseverant in hard times and obedient to what he says. Verse 5 says that there is a day that's coming where he will look at our hearts, each one of us, and he will determine who has been faithful. A day is coming. We should be ready for it. We should be faithful people.